passage to go to, and that's my fault. I thought I got the information to Norma on time, and then she informed me that I did not. I was a day late. So we will be in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 15. Uh, so you can flip there now. It's easier to start at the back and work forwards than it is to start at the front and work backwards. But 2 Peter 1, 1 to 15. And over the summer, as I've been meeting with the teens on Wednesday nights, when we have our lessons, what I've constantly been reminding the teens about is the gospel, is the good news of Jesus Christ. And Kaya was just shaking her head. She may be a little uh, tired of hearing it because every lesson begins the same exact way with an explanation of the gospel. Which, if you are an unbeliever here today, you need to hear. And if you are a believer here today, you still need to hear that God is good and he has a law and he has rules that he has set and you as a sinner are not. In fact, as a sinner, you are a criminal. You are a lawbreaker. And because of that, you have earned punishment. And that punishment is death. And something the Bible makes very clear all throughout it is that you can't earn right standing before God. You can't do enough. You can't give enough to make up for the crimes that you have committed and the sins that you have committed whether it's lying or lust, whether it's cheating or anger. And so if it was left there, it would be a very hopeless situation. God is good, you are not, and now you are going to hell for your sins. But God does not leave us there because God loves us. And he sends his son, Jesus Christ, as a savior to save us. And the way that he saves us is by Jesus Christ willingly dying in our place. He takes the punishment we deserved willingly on himself and pays it in full so that the wrath of God is satisfied. And all we have to do now as sinners, as enemies of God, to be made right with God, to be forgiven of our sins, to be saved from our sins, is to believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross in dying for our sins, being buried and rising again, was enough. We trust in him and him alone for our salvation. And this is what I've been going over week after week with the teens. And it, the lessons I've been doing follow a rough outline given in one of my favorite books. In fact, outside of the Bible, it is my favorite book. It is called The Gospel Primer or The Gospel Primer. I'm still not sure how you pronounce that second word. Uh, but it was written by a man named Milton Vincent. And the whole point of the book is that the gospel is still useful to believers. In fact, the book gives 31 reasons why you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, should rehearse the gospel daily. And this is all that the book talks about. It encourages you, the believer, to daily remind yourself of the good news of Jesus Christ, of all that he has done for you in providing your salvation. Now, Milton Vincent, in the 1980s, wasn't the first person to figure this out. In fact, there are numerous New Testament passages that offer us reminders that tell us that it's important that we be reminded of certain things. And 2 Peter 1, 1-15 is one of those passages.
And what I want us to see through this passage is that gospel reminders cause growth in biblical qualities, which produce strong, fruitful believers. Gospel reminders, reminding yourself of the good news of Jesus Christ, causes growth in biblical qualities. We'll see a list of them in our passage today. And as we grow in these qualities, we become stronger believers. We become more fruitful believers. We become more useful believers in the things that God has for us to do. So we're going to start at the beginning. Verse 1. Makes sense. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As is common in New Testament epistles, the author identifies himself. He is Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. This word bondservant in Greek is the word doulos. And bondservant is the nice English word for saying slave. That word means slave. It, it has the idea of literally somebody who belongs to someone else. Not in the sense of a husband belongs to his wife, a wife belongs to his husband, a child belongs to his parents. But in the sense of your property that somebody else owns. That's the idea in this word slave. In fact, we get a pretty practical demonstration of how this relationship works. Uh, Matthew 8, 9, you don't have to flip there. But this is a centurion speaking to Jesus. And he has to say this as a man of authority. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another comes, and to another come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. That is a very practical illustration of how doulos worked. You, as a doulos, had your entire identity, your entire person, wrapped up in your master. It is where your provision came from. It is where your security came from. It is where your orders came from. And you are expected that when your master said, do this, you did it because you were owned by them. This is how Peter identifies himself. In fact, this is how Paul identifies himself. James identifies himself. Jude identifies himself. He does not start off with, it's me, Peter, disciple and apostle of Jesus Christ. You guys have heard of me. It's Peter, a slave of Christ. And by the way, just as an aside, in Romans 6, Paul makes it very clear that you too are a doulos to Christ. That you too are a slave to Christ. You're not business partners with him. You're not buddies. He doesn't come to you like you're some advisory board asking you what he should do in your life. He's your master. You're his slave and what he says you do. That is the reality of the relationship of a believer to God. Now, he is a loving father. He is all of these other things. But don't forget, he is the master and he has commands. And you are expected to do them. So he introduces himself as a doulos, as a slave, and he introduces himself as an apostle. Now, in our day and age, there are those uh, within certain Christian circles who would claim to be apostles themselves. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but when we normally think of apostles, we think of the 12. Well, the 11 disciples minus Judas and then the apostle Paul. But this word apostle really just means messenger. 
In Christian literature, it means someone who has a message from God, namely the gospel. And so Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, probably the guy who gets the most attention in the gospels, identifies himself two ways. I am a slave and I am a messenger. And my master has sent me out with a message. So I am giving it to you. And then he identifies who his audience is. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, it is those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Even though Peter walked with Jesus Christ, was one of his inner circle, top three disciples, had some of the most interactions recorded in the gospel that we have, these other believers who never met Jesus Christ personally, as in in person, have the same faith as him. They are on equal footing. And their faith is through their Savior's righteousness, not their own. And also, just as an aside, uh, if you ever meet anybody who claims that Jesus Christ was not God, 2 Peter 1.1 is one of the best verses to go to because he makes it very clear. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is referring to Jesus Christ as both his God and his Savior. So, this is Peter writing to an audience of believers, those who have faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ, those who have believed the gospel. Verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. His prayer for them is grace and peace. He extends grace and peace to them, and this grace and peace is grounded in their knowledge of God and of Jesus through their salvation. Something that Peter will constantly emphasize in Second Peter is the importance of knowledge. And when he uses this word knowledge, what he's referring to is spiritual knowledge that one is personally acquainted with. Or to put it in, a, in another way, knowledge about God and spiritual things that the unbeliever doesn't have, because they're not believers in Jesus Christ, that the one who has the knowledge has personally experienced. So it is both knowledge of higher things, namely God, Jesus Christ, salvation, faith, and it is knowledge that you've experienced. Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ... You've experienced salvation. You've experienced the saving faith in Jesus Christ provided by God. And he will constantly emphasize knowledge throughout this book because Second Peter really is a book against false teaching. In fact, Second Peter 2, if you want to read it after the sermon, has some very strong language against false teachers. It is one of the strongest books against false teaching. And Peter knows the best tool against false teaching is right knowledge. Knowledge that comes through saving faith. Now, Peter expands on this knowledge with three separate things in verses 3 and 4. First is God's power. God's power has given everything that we need for life and godliness. God has provided everything that we need as believers for salvation. 
He has provided everything that we need for the life after salvation to be obedient to his word. And he tells us the second bit of knowledge that everything pertaining to life and godliness comes through the saving knowledge of God. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. It is that God, through his power, has given you at salvation everything you need to obey his word, to live a life of godliness. And frankly, most of the Christian life is learning more truths about the gospel, more truths about God, and then learning how those apply to your life so that you can obey them. That is, in a nutshell, the Christian process of sanctification, that you learn more truths about your reality as a believer in Jesus Christ and how you apply them to your life. And we spend our whole life learning these two things as we become more like Christ. So God has called us to himself because of his own glory and excellence. God has provided everything pertaining to life and godliness by his own glory and excellence. God called you to be a believer in Jesus Christ by his own glory and excellence. It's not that God looked at the list of 8 billion people on the planet and saw that Nick Weber was in the top 75%, so he earned a spot. So he made the team. Because if that was the case, I would have earned my salvation. It's not that God looked at Pastor Larry and saw him in the top 99%. And now Pastor Larry has earned his salvation. It's that God is glorious and excellent. And because of that, he has given salvation to us. Because he is so far above in degree, in love and grace and forgiveness and mercy and kindness and all of these other virtues, he has decided to extend to you salvation by his own glory, by his own excellence. And then in verse 4, we learn the third thing of knowledge. For by these, his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God has given us promises. In his own excellence, God, the creator of the universe, has promised you things. First, it's the promise of becoming a partaker of the divine nature. Turn with me to Acts 2, and we are going to read Peter's very first sermon. Well, not all of it, but we're going to read parts of it. Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verses 14 to 18, and then we're going to jump to the end. And we're going to see what Peter means by becoming a partaker of the divine nature. So this is Peter on the day of Pentecost. This is when the great wind, the flames appear above the believers' heads. They speak in tongues. The crowd comes and they say, yeah, these guys are drunk. And then Peter gets up and he makes his defense. Verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, 
that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. If we jump to verse 37 and 38, Peter finishes his address, and now the crowd responds. Verse 37 is the crowd's response. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This first promise that Peter makes mention of in 2 Peter 1 is that you become a partaker of the divine nature. He is not saying that you can work your way to becoming God. That is Mormon heresy. What he is saying is that when you are a believer in Jesus Christ, at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit is poured out in you. That he indwells you. And when he indwells you, you are given a new nature. Because God dwells in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And through this new nature, you are able to obey God's commands. You are able to grow more like Christ. As we'll see, you will be able to grow in the different virtues that Peter is going to list. So it's not that once you're saved, you can become God, but it is that when you're saved, God dwells in you and enables you to be more like Jesus Christ. The second promise is that of escaping the world by lust, escaping the corruption that is in the world by lust. Turn with me again to John 17. John 17 is the end of the upper room discourse. So this is the last major block of teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples. This is on the night of Passover. They're all in the upper room. It's Jesus and his 12, well, 11 minus Judas. And 13 to 17 is his final address to them. And 17 is his prayer. So we're going to start in verse 13 and read to verse 16. This is Jesus speaking. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have joy made full of themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. When you are saved, you are called out of the world. Your identity is now wrapped up in your master, Jesus Christ. Your identity is no longer wrapped up in your country, your political party, or your favorite football team. Your identity is wrapped up in your master, Jesus Christ. You have been called out of the world. You have been freed from the world. You have been freed from sin by dying to it and being made alive to Christ. And so he has promised you his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells you and makes you more like Christ. He has promised you freedom from the world. Right now, you are free from the world. You no longer identify with it. You have a new name, a new family, a new nature, a new identity, all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And later, when this sin-cursed world is destroyed by fire, and a new heavens and a new earth is created, you will get to enjoy that freedom from sin 
forever in a curse-free world. So what Peter has been doing here in verses 1 to 4 is going over some truths of salvation, realities of salvation, that if you have faith in God and Savior, Jesus Christ, these things are true for you. That God's power has provided everything that you need for life and godliness. That God's power has provided your salvation. That God has called you to salvation. That God has given you these promises that you can absolutely count on. All of this is reality for the believer. This is true for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. This is the reality that you live in. And now what Peter is going to do and what many New Testament authors do is he is going to go from this is your new reality. Here is truth about how your life works now. Here's how it should affect your life. Or, as I put it, the realization of salvation. We had the real reality of salvation. Now we have the realization of salvation. Verse 5 starts with, Now for this very reason also. The New Living Translation says, In view of all of this. So Peter is directly linking what's about to come with the truths that he's just gone over concerning salvation. And he gives a list of qualities that should be, as verse 5 puts it, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. These are things that should be supplied or provided to faith. Verses 5 to 7. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Moral excellence in the King James is also translated virtue. It is that you excel, that you grow more and more in those things which the Bible calls good, which God's word calls good. Things like patience or grace or mercy or forgiveness. And then we have knowledge. Knowledge of God. Learning more about your reality learning more about your master, and learning more about how you are to live. Then we have self-control. Another word that you could use for this is mastery. It is the ability to control one's own desires. And oftentimes in scripture, when this word is brought up, it is in the context of relationships, of being able to control one's own body when dealing with someone who is not a spouse. However, that is not all that it means. Uh, Tristan, you were up here. Where's your favorite place to eat? Hot, that's, a good, that's a good answer. What is your favorite thing to get at Heisey's? Chicken tenders. That is also a good answer. All right, so when you go to Heisey's, you want to order chicken tenders, right? Okay. Bryce, I see you back there. Where's your favorite place to eat? Where? Tosco? Oh, Tosco. Okay. What do you like to get at Tosco's? Pizza? Which one? Just the plain one? Yeah, they have pretty good pizzas at Tosco's. So we all have favorite places to eat. And I remember in reading a book, I remember nothing else about this book. I think it was Every Man's Battle, but I do not honestly remember. But he was talking about 
self-control. And oftentimes when we think of self-control, we think of it in the context of relationships, of those temptations that we see on the street, on the billboard, on the screen, when we think no one else is watching and in our own minds. And yes, that's definitely part of it. But he told a story of a pastor he knew who, when he was feeling a steak, would go to a steakhouse, whether it was Outback or Longhorn or whatever, I don't remember, but he would enter into the steakhouse. He would want to eat a steak. So he would enter in, he would get seated, he would be surrounded by all the smells of a steakhouse, all of the wonderful things that they're eating. He would be presented by, with the menu, be allowed to think it over, and then when it came time to order, he would order a salad. And he would eat the salad. And then he would go home. And this is because the pastor understood that, yes, while self-control has to do with relationships, it also has to do with things like your appetite or your anger. And one of the ways that he would practice self-control is by controlling his own fleshly desires. He wanted to gorge himself on steak. That is what his body wanted. And he had mastery over himself and did not give it what it wanted. This is how he practiced self-control. Self-control has a lot more to do than just what you see on a screen or in your mind when you think no one else is paying attention, although it definitely has to do with that. And this is one of the qualities we are to grow in. Next comes perseverance. It is the power to withstand hardship or stress. In the context of 2 Peter, this would be perseverance against false teaching. In the context of 1 Peter, this would be perseverance against persecution because 1 Peter is all about how the church is to act amidst persecution. Then he gets to godliness. Another word that you could use here would be piety. You, it would literally be orthodoxy and orthopraxy. You have right knowledge of God and you have right practice towards God. You know the right things about God, the correct things about God, and you act in a way that's in agreement with God's word. Brotherly kindness, you will all recognize this word in the Greek because it is the word Philadelphia. And I know that when you go to Philadelphia, you are just astounded by all of the brotherly kindness that goes on there. That's what the city is known for. That's what it's named after. But in this context, this is the love that unites brothers and sisters in Christ because they are in Christ. This is the love that each of us has experienced through the Savior and that unifies us as the church as the body under the head, Jesus Christ. And last is love. This is agape love. This is a self-sacrificial love. This is a love that puts the goodwill of others before itself. And Peter continues in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. These are the qualities which should be in a believer's life and should be increasing. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. These aren't levels. The list can sometimes be read as you have to master moral excellence before you move on to knowledge. And then you just kind of leave love alone until you get up to level seven. That's not how you should read the list. How many of you have a garden? Okay, quite a few of you. How many of you have planted tomatoes and peppers? Okay, are they starting to come in at the same time? Because we have a garden 
And that's what's going on with ours. Our pepper plants and our tomato plants are growing at the same time. When you see this list of qualities, I want you to think of it like a garden of virtues. It is not that you are going to tend to your tomato plant and then once it bears fruit, then you're going to move on to your pepper plant. It's not that you're going to deal with moral excellence and then once that's taken care of, you're going to move on to knowledge. Instead, you have these different virtues planted in your garden and you are doing what you can to make sure they all grow together. They're not meant to wait one for another. Your pepper plants will not wait for your tomato plants to be done or vice versa. And that's how these virtues should be viewed, that they should be growing together. And when one of them needs a little help, you give it that little extra help so that it continues to grow with everything else. And when you have these qualities, to put it positively in verse 8, they make you useful and they make you fruitful. These are the qualities that make you useful to God, that make you fruitful in your own life. Remember, God didn't save you for funsies. God didn't save you just because he was bored one weekend and needed a project. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that God prepared good works for us so that we would walk in them. He has things for you to do, whether it's go to the fair and hand out Bibles, uh, whether it's run VBS, and give the gospel with children, whether it's greet people at the door, whatever it may be, he has things for you to do. And when these virtues are yours and growing, you are better at it. The master has given you orders. Blessed is the slave who is doing what the master asked when the master returns. These virtues make you better for the job that God has for you. Because, and those who do not have these qualities, are blind or short-sighted. These are those who have seen the truths of the gospel, and it's literally, they close their eyes to it. Very much like a little kid, that if I can't see it, it's not real. And so they don't grow in these qualities. They, they do not let the truths of the gospel impact their life so that they are becoming more useful or more fruitful. And then verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren... Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, these qualities, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter encouraged them to grow in these qualities, not just because it makes them useful and fruitful, but it also gives you confidence in your salvation. I don't know about you, but I've had doubts about my salvation in the past. What these qualities do when you are growing in them, or if you want to take a different list, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, to 23. When these are growing in you, they give you confidence in your salvation. It's not that they save you, but they become evidence that you've been saved. When you can look at your life and see that you have grown in love, or you have grown in self-control, it gives you confidence as a believer to know that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. You have been saved by Jesus Christ. You can be made more sure or make certain of his calling and of his choosing. And even beyond that, when these qualities are yours and increasing, you will be richly rewarded. That's what verse 11 is talking about. The entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that when a believer dies, you are going to face judgment. Now, this is not a judgment for punishment. This is a judgment for reward. And your life's works are going to pass through the fire. And that which is hay and wood and stubble is going to burn up. You, you don't get it. But that which is good works, silver, gold, and precious metals, will pass through the fire. And whatever passes through the fire, you get to keep. They become your eternal rewards in heaven. So when these qualities are yours and are increasing, your eternal rewards in heaven are increasing. You have more things that will pass through the fire and be left over as a reward for you for the good works that you have done as a believer because of these qualities. Because you were allowing the truth of the gospel of your new reality to affect how you live. The reality of salvation was realized in your life. And now we conclude our passage with verses 12 to 15. So we had the reality of salvation, that's verses 1 to 4. We had the realization of salvation, how it comes to bear on your life as a believer, how it should be showing up, that's verses 5 to 11. And now we have the reminder of salvation. 2 Peter 1, 12 to 15, this is what we read as a congregation. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter ends this section with a, a personal note, what I like to call his friendly reminder. Notice that Peter readily admits that his audience already knows these things. Peter knows that he is just reminding them of things that, they've already, that they already know. And chances are, quite a bit of what I've said sounds familiar because you already know it. But to Peter, it was right to remind his audience. It was in accordance with the word of God to stir them up by way of reminder. This verb to stir up literally means to rouse. It's the idea that someone is asleep and you're waking them up. That you are making them awake and aware to something. In this case, the truths of the gospel and how it should affect their life. And so Peter is planning to, with the time that he has left, remind them of the gospel and all that comes with it. Because this is an act of righteousness in Peter's mind. And Peter knows he doesn't have a lot of time. Second Peter was written at the earliest, about A.D. 64. Emperor Nero was no longer emperor by A.D. 68. His reign ended in A.D. 68. Emperor Nero is the emperor who oversaw Paul's execution by beheading. Emperor Nero is also the emperor who oversaw Peter's execution by crucifixion upside down. When Peter writes 2 Peter, this is the last book he's ever going to write. In fact, these are the last words of Peter. He has, at best, four years. More likely, less than two. And then he is going to be crucified upside down after being forced to watch his wife die by crucifixion. That is what church tradition tells us. He knows he does not have a lot of time left, and he knows how he's going to die. John 21, 18 is Jesus 
giving Peter a hint as to what's going to happen to him. Jesus uses the phrase, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. The phrase, stretch out your hands, was a very sanitized way of talking of crucifixion. It's how you talked about it without actually having to talk about the horror of it. So Peter knows he doesn't have a lot of time left and he knows what waits for him when it comes to die. So with the time he has left, he's going to remind his audience of the gospel and the truths of the gospel and how they should act because of the gospel. So that, verse 15, even after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. That even when he is dead, even when he is gone, his audience and every believer after him who is able to read Second Peter will be able to call the truths that he's discussed and how they should affect our lives to mind. They will be able to have that knowledge that they need to fight false teaching and to grow in Christ. Gospel reminders cause growth in biblical qualities which produce strong, fruitful believers. The audience to which Peter writes has faith in our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They have believed in the gospel. They have knowledge of God and have been called to salvation because God is glorious and God is excellent and he has provided all that they need for life and godliness. He has given them promises, promises of the Holy Spirit, of a new divine nature. He has given them promises of freedom from the sin of this world, having died to sin with Christ. And because of these things, they are now to grow in Christian qualities. Moral excellence, self-control, brotherly kindness, love. These qualities make the believer useful. These qualities give the believer confidence in their salvation. These qualities give the believer eternal rewards on the other side of this life. And Peter writes all of this to an audience that already knows it. Because it is very important to give that reminder to his audience and to you of the good news of Jesus Christ, of the reality of salvation, and of how we are to be living as believers in Jesus Christ. So he gives us a reminder, so we do not forget. So we are constantly able to call it to mind. And we need the reminder as much as Peter's audience did. Of the good news of Jesus Christ, of all that God has done for us in salvation, of all that Jesus Christ has done for us in salvation, of the love and the patience and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy and the righteousness and all of these things that I could list till I'm blue in the face and not be done with it that are in salvation and how we are to live because of it. And so I would encourage you daily to remind yourself of the good news of Jesus Christ. Whether it's just a simple sentence that you repeat to yourself, whether you type it out on a piece of paper and stick it to your mirror, whether you put it on a note card and have it in your car, whatever it may be, remind yourself daily of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remind yourself daily of the truths in the gospel so that you can be growing in these qualities. So that you can be found a useful and fruitful slave doing what the master has called you to do. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for reminders. I thank you that Peter understood the importance of reminders, as many of the New Testament authors did, calling us to renew our minds, reminding us of these truths of the gospel, not because we didn't know them necessarily, but because it is so easy to forget. 
And so I pray that day in and day out, we are reminded of the knowledge we have of you, of our salvation, of your son, of what you have called us to do. And I pray that like self-control and moral excellence and love, we also grow in that knowledge. That we come to know more about our salvation, more about our God, more about our Savior, so that we are better able to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to grow in these qualities that you have listed here and that you have listed elsewhere in your word. Enable us to grow through these reminders. Help us to remember the truths of your word, the truths of our life, and help us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen.